Subscribe to The Spectator this Christmas and get the next 12 weeks of print and online access as well as a bottle of Paul Roger champagne, all for just £12. This offer is available in the UK only. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Santa to subscribe. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the paleoarchaeologist Paul Pettit, whose new book is Homo Sapiens Rediscovered, The Scientific Revolution, Rewriting Our Origins. We're going right back to the Ice Age. Paul, welcome. Hello. Can I start by asking, I mean, many of us have a sort of sketchy idea about, you know, Stone Age, Ice Age man, and, you know, the... You know, some of it derived from the Flintstones, some of it maybe more <laughs> sophisticated than that. But can you tell me what what in this book is new? What What is it that you wanted to say that kind of reshapes how we understand our deep past? Well, there are a number of reasons to to write it, actually. As you say, our, our Flintstones-derived notion of cavemen, as they're often called, is, of course, a, a very biased one. It goes back to 19th century ideas of what these primitive humans, the likes of Mr. Darwin, were predicting would be found should look like. And the big model was Hercules, of course, with his furs and club and so on. But we we know that they're obviously more sophisticated than that and weren't living in caves. So first, it's to redress that idea and, and reveal the difficulties of living in the Ice Age, in the Pleistocene. But really, my my main drive was to bring to the fore how archaeology over the last 10 or 20 years has really ramped up the way we can understand finely nuanced aspects of our ancestors' behaviour. And of course, we're all familiar with the terrific contributions that genetics have made, both what modern genetics of global human populations can reveal about our ancestry, but also the extraction of ancient DNA, often from very scrappy bits of bone. That story, the biology of the evolution of our species, I think is well known and has been well publicised, but I wanted to refer back almost to what us archaeologists scratching the dirt in the caves and rock shelters and river terraces of the world have been able to reveal about the significant problems we had to overcome as a human species, as a very small population of of animals, as we dispersed through the old and subsequently new world. So it was trying to bring together a narrative story that, you know, lasts the last 300,000 years. It does sound like your discipline itself has completely transformed since you started doing it. I mean, that the sort of image of the archaeologist is actually sort of scratching stuff up and looking at it and making guesses as to its purpose and age. (laughs) You know, the the scientific advances, you say, last 20 years or so have completely transformed how you do what you do, haven't they? Absolutely. Certainly since when I was an undergraduate in the late 80s, early 90s, it's almost unrecognisable now. But in the last 10, 20 years, particularly biomolecular approaches to the human remains we have or to the remains of the animals that were the dinners of these people, to understanding 
the sites that contain the archaeology and how they formed and how that affects our picture. These have all radically transformed by advances not only in how we undertake excavations out in the field, how we preserve materials, how we study them in the laboratory, you know, right down to the biomolecular level. So this, of course, enables us to address questions, to answer questions that I would have thought would have been in the realm of fantasy as a young and naive undergraduate not that long ago. <laughs> no. Well, can you start by walking us back to the beginning? Because one of the things that's striking, I mean, I know that this is a book you know, your special interest, I think I'm right in characterising it, is in culture, is in yes. in the behaviour and the artefacts that they consciously made and so forth. But you spend, I think, probably more than a third of the book on, you know, basic biology in a way. And, you know, why is that? Can you start to talk about why that's so important to get in Pelé's first and maybe walk us back to the beginning, you know, before we were walking. (laughs) Tell us where we start. Of course. Nicely put. Yeah, of course, we are a a biological species. We owe much to our genetic makeup. And one has to consider that our our evolutionary story and of our ape ancestors and early human ancestors before that is, of course, a biological and ecological a genetic story. But as you rightly say, my interest is in behaviour. As an archaeologist, it's in culture and particularly, if you like, those aspects of behaviour that we think are unique or at least very specific to humans, such as visual culture, including art, language and this kind of thing. So that part of the story in evolutionary terms, is relatively recent, the last 300,000 years or so and under. And that's my focus of the book. But quite rightly, as you say, we have a long evolutionary process taking us back six or seven million years in Africa, where the ape populations quite happily swinging around and (laughs) crawling around on branches up in the trees of the great Miocene forests come under a lot of pressure as climate becomes far more arid, as water is being locked up at the poles of the planet as we start moving into another ice age. This breaks up those great forests and some of those populations of apes need to locomote more on an opening savanna and that's what starts the story. They learn to be more energetic walking upright. They learn to start using tools to butcher carcasses of animals. They start eating more meat. Their brains start increasing probably as they start having to deal with the social problems of dealing in slightly larger groups and so on. That sets the ball rolling for a really bushy evolutionary tree. Lots of experiments on these cranial changes on locomotion and so on. And by around two million years ago, we have the emergence in Africa still of what is something recognisably human as opposed to ape. It's getting a body that is relatively long limbed. Its brain by now is perhaps two thirds the size of our own. It's spending a lot of energy on maintaining this big brain and so on. And as the story continues, we see the brain growing even more. We see this human, this early homo, becoming a tool-assisted hunter. 
And then that takes us down in Africa to somewhere before 300,000 years ago, where the human remains we have really look, to all intents and purposes, like those of our own. They are Homo sapiens, exactly what the genetics is showing as well. There is a sort of, it feels like a kind of fascinating sort of chicken and egg type thing going on, or multiple chickens and eggs, because as you describe it, in order to be social, we need a bigger brain. And in order to have a bigger brain, we need to feed it with, among other things, meat, because it's very nutrient dense and so forth. And in order to do that, we need to use tools, we need to use fire, you know, to, so we can take in these things. And you talk about the development of the brain, you know, these social skills. I mean, one of the things you say, which I found fascinating, you talk about the neurological aspects of tool use and tool creation. And it's an amazing thing how you how you replicate this with students. <laughs> but that you suggest, I think I'm, I'm right in remembering, that the sort of neurological development that's required to make tools may be kind of almost identical to that that's required for language. You know, you sort of need to be social to use tools and language to teach each other how to do it. Is it does yes. this all happen at once or is there one thing that kind of drives all this? Well, it's happening at once if you look at it on a 300,000 year timescale, yes. But within that, of course, this will probably be some kind of mutual feedback loop that if we see the brain as a muscle, then obviously if we start doing particular tasks that favour the development of that muscle, that's going to happen. But that will feed into other tasks that draw on the same muscle as well. And the, the same can be said to simplify obviously for neural pathways and so on so yeah what seems to be the case with the evolution of our own brains in Africa and subsequent to that is an increase in the way that we perceive the world our visual system if you like the way in which we sequence information in which we can actually give it priorities make generalizations from the past about the future and therefore predictions and so on do relate to similar areas of the brain it's what cognitive specialists would call the executive functions of the brain all of those things that relate to working memory and complex sets of data and this kind of thing and that seems to have been really what got going in the brains of early Homo sapiens. And probably if we can relate it to anything, it does come down to living in group sizes that are bigger than those that ape brains can maintain. So simply, if you have to retain information about more individuals you're meeting and whether you like them or not, or whether they owe you something or not, then this is the kind of way that the muscles of the brain are being exercised, so to speak. Not very much at all, very modest, as with anything in evolution, very modest effects at first, but these have a tendency to ratchet up and become more important, more pronounced over time. And is this, in some sense, the beginnings of culture in that having a larger group allows you to use, I guess, what we now might call transactive memory, that the collective knows more than the individual and can transmit it through time. Yes, absolutely. Of course, language is critical to this. And in many respects, we are for linguists, I should say, are forced to make some educated guesses about how language evolved and particularly about the timescale. 
over which it evolved. But they can use quite a clever combination of how apes communicate on the one hand and, of course, how languages in the historically documented present have evolved to make some inferences about an evolutionary tree. So if we say that probably when Homo sapiens first appeared in Africa, we're dealing with a language that could probably deal with pairing a noun and a verb, something like that, you know, read the spectator, something like that to, <laughs> to, to mix my uh, examples. You know. Tom Sapp's first advertorial. <laughs> and this would probably suffice for face-to-face communication in these still small groups by our standards, obviously, but in which already the group is starting to encapsulate, to hold some of that information that it's shared between individuals and, as you say, not in everybody's head at the same time. And certainly that's what ratchets up. And with Homo sapiens and to an extent with the Neanderthals, in Europe, we can see that the external environment becomes used to retain some information as well in the form of visual culture, making marks on things and so on. And that is probably the innovation that really distinguishes humans or later members of the genus Homo from anything that went before them. Now, it's it's not Tullius itself, is it, that distinguishes Homo sapiens? I mean, some of our predecessors were making these, you know, axes, you say, they're, they're around for sort of 300,000 years or thereabouts. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's not. Tullius has a great antiquity. Some Australopithecines who are effectively upright walking apes in the African savannah were using simple tools to butcher carcasses as early as 3.3 million years ago. And we see a, a long record of increasing sophistication. So we follow that trend, but that doesn't mean to say our tools are similar to those older ones, as we call them. What we do aside from having a far greater variability of tools on a far greater variety of materials as well, stone, mammoth ivory, reindeer antler, animal bone. We also like them to be far more standardised. So say, unlike a, an earlier member of the genus Homo, we don't just want any old spearhead. It's got to be a certain type of you know, Durham University spearhead, if you like. So standardisation and particularly the social messages encapsulated in those simple everyday items that we carry around seem to be more important to us by far. Now, you mentioned this, this progress out of Africa. I think probably, you know, some will sort of vaguely that it was a, a quite straightforward, you know, we migrated up and up and up. And out we went. But it's much more complicated than that, isn't it? I mean, there's also the sense that we went we went east before we went north. Yes. Yes, we did indeed. We're obviously a tropical, subtropical species. And it's no surprise that our early dispersals out of Africa stayed within the latitudinal bands that we had evolved in. So, as you say, take us east. In this period between 80 and 50,000 years ago. And of course, we can look at maps, distribution maps of our early dispersals in books, 
all we like. But what these don't show so much is the topographic and therefore environmental differences from region to region. You know, the vastness of the Iranian plateau or the Himalayas, which are barriers most of the time. We're dealing with a highly unstable climate. We obviously think of the Ice Age as cold. Sure, it is most of the time, very cold a lot of the time. But at others, we have relatively warm periods, almost as warm as the the interglacial we're in today. So everything is changing. Dispersal routes, opportunities open up now and then and close down in others. And the pattern of our earliest dispersals out of Africa is very much one of opportunity and then extinction. Almost all of them are failures, which is not a bad thing. That's ecology, that's evolution. And, you know, one might say... One step forward, two steps back. Absolutely. We wouldn't describe our moonshots and the current, the recently returned one, as failures. They were successes, but they were temporary and they, they came home, so to speak. So when we view this and when we see the remarkable diversity of environments that we dispersed into in that period, 80 to to 50,000. It takes us from the rainforests of Southeast Asia, you know, Indonesia, ultimately to Australia, and up to the Arctic coast of Siberia by this time. And, And this is really what makes us, in my opinion, unique. Because prior to that, we're an African species Sure, we're distributed in patches, at least, across the entirety of Africa. We're highly successful. We're growing in population and sophistication and so on. But we don't occupy anything different. We stay in those grassland environments. And if they happen to spread across Eurasia, so do we. And so do ostriches and other animals. You talk about the green Sahara. I love this image of a green Sahara that vital to us. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Green Arabia, you know, we can see through excavations, obviously, by geologists, earth scientists, that what we see now, of course, of desertified North Africa and adjacent areas of Arabia is, is remarkably different to what they've been throughout most of the last two million years. These were riverine oases, grasslands, an extension that takes us first through into the Near East, into Israel, Jordan, Syria, and then later much further. But really what this demonstrates is certainly after 100,000 years ago, the cognitive apparatus, the behavioural apparatus we have now allows us for the first time to stay put in dramatically different environments, which actually are far harder to subsist as a hunter-gatherer in than these lovely grasslands. It's all very well if you've got big herds of animals that are easy to hunt, the lawnmowers of the, the grassland, if you like. But when you're in a rainforest, when resources are up in the canopy, they are in small numbers, they require technologies, projectile technologies to get, or in the Arctic with the simple issue of cold to deal with. You know, you really are in a human realm there. And that's what facilitates the uh, dispersal ultimately at the end of the Pleistocene into the rest of the planet, you know, into into the New World, into the Americas. There is that, I mean, you talk when you're describing being in the field, you know, certainly the places you are, you say, this is very dangerous for me, even, you know, with all these 20th century technology. I mean, 
I find myself wondering, what on earth were they doing heading off for what you, you know, in a nice scientific way call the Paleoarctic, which is just the effing cold bit. I mean, <laughs> they head right off into Siberia. Why would you do that when it's a bit warm where you are? <laughs> well, evolutionary biologists have shown us very much that there are some real ecological rules that when human groups certainly or primate groups reach a certain size population size they fission in other words groups break off and there is a drive this is so-called dunbar's number yeah exactly it's robin dunbar I'm, I'm thinking of and his numbers as well as the the big number you know so yeah we know that there is always a drive among successful growing populations to disperse Add to that when the environments that they're most comfortable with disperse, it provides nature's obvious way for, for populating previously blank spaces. However, when climate changes in the Pleistocene, that leaves these in a changing environment that isn't exactly ideal. But if they have reached a certain population when it is impossible to retreat, so to speak, you know, to go backwards into uh, more favourable environments, then certainly they were staying put and dealing with these new issues. And yes, it's a remarkably dangerous world. And the story I use in the book is South Africa, where everybody's standing around with rifles and you feel a little and fire and you feel a little protected for that or actually one could say in the in the rainforest of Borneo which I have a tremendous respect for the, the insects and snakes alone so as a still a spear assisted human sure with fire it puts it in great perspective it's a dangerous world the odds are against the survival of these small groups we can't overestimate that anymore so to an extent you know it is lucky that we're here when we see how thin on the ground we were and in such hostile areas now there is this question of you know you talk about the great tree of possibilities and the the failed experiments and you know one of the most famous ones of those is the neanderthals and also to a lesser extent in sort of southeast asia the, the denisovan population you talk about who are kind of nearly humans now you say there's, there's evidence from genetics that we came into contact with these populations do you have a sense of of why they they became extinct and i mean i'm i'm thinking of william golding's the inheritors <laughs> what how accurate that is because he's fairly unequivocal that Homs that wipe them out. Is that your reading of it? No, it isn't. But uh, I think that the real revolutionary thing is in that period of dispersal and diversification, we now know that there are several human species or groups, whether or not we call them distinct species is moot, knocking around in different parts of Eurasia. As you say, the Neanderthals, who are the indigenous European or Central Eurasian and European human. The Denisovans, who we still know next to nothing about, we <laughs> have a few scrappy bones. We know they were up on the Tibetan plateau. We, we know they were in the Altai Mountains. Other than that, and a good genetic sequence or two, we don't really know how they were behaving and whether they were a match, as it were, for Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. What we do know is that we have at least these three groups, 
plus more isolated small-bodied human groups in the the so-called hobbits, unfortunately named on Flores in island Indonesia and Homo luzonensis in the Philippines. But what is the case, and this is where the picture has really changed in 20 years, is we now know that even down to 40,000 years ago, the twinkle of an eye in the evolutionary terms, there were lots of humans around and were probably still to sample fossils for, for others. But it has been, since we've known about the Neanderthals for over a century, an issue as to whether our expansion up into Europe for the first time and their extinction were at all connected. We know these events occurred, broadly speaking, around the same time. And genetically, of course, we know that we did share some DNA with Neanderthals, Denisovans, and them with themselves, in fact. So probably the best interpretation of that genetic data is that occasionally these three groups would come into contact with each other, probably on the edges of their range in the Near East, around the Iranian plateau, over into Pakistan, this kind of area. And when they did, I imagine they probably shot first and asked questions later. But when they did get talking, so to speak, they did occasionally exchange genes. Now, whether the shooting first resulted in the extinction of the Denisovans or the Neanderthals as a deliberate end product of the of Homo sapiens, I think is unlikely. Certainly a number of us, myself included, a while back, have gone through this notion that we probably did play a role. We're a large, aggressive species. You know, anthropologically, we tend to be, well, not very nice, and it would make more sense in this case. But I think now, as we understand the archaeology, particularly as we understand finer aspects of the behaviour of all of these human groups, we can see the picture is more nuanced. And in that broad period, let's say between 50,000 and 40,000 years ago, when this contact occasionally is happening, we can see that the three groups share some of their visual culture, some of the objects they're ornamenting their bodies with, bits of animals, carnivores' teeth, fox teeth, bear teeth, shells, this kind of thing. It's surprising that out of all of the materials these three human groups could use to ornament their bodies, they're choosing broadly similar things. And that seems, to me at least, to suggest that they are sharing a degree of communication. It's simple, perhaps going back to those two words, you know, me strong, don't mess with me, don't mess with the spectator, don't mess with Durham University, you know, that kind of thing. But that's probably enough. So I think there was more communication going on between these groups. And it wasn't just about letting your javelin fly before anything else happened. So I don't think it's fair to say we played a major role in Neanderthal extinction and Denisovan extinction. Just parenthetically, you know, this rather silly question in a way, but we're spreading out into Europe and we're spreading out into Asia and we encounter these other groups. They're already here. Are they the, if you like, the descendants of a previous wave of expansion that was then effectively cut off by, say, a, a mini ice age or whatever it would have been? 
So Neanderthals evolved in place in Europe from an archaic homo, a more archaic homo. But which was never in Africa. That Well, something was similar in Africa, but probably broadly related, itself probably evolving from that archaic equivalent sister, if you like, in Africa. What we can tell is in the few tens of thousands of years prior to the first arrival of Homo sapiens in Europe, Neanderthal populations were declining. So their disappearance in, in a broader sense isn't perhaps that surprising. We know that other large-bodied animals in Ice Age Europe were disappearing around the same time, such as rhinos, step rhinos in particular, hyenas, another social carnivore as well. So putting it in paleontological context, again, this isn't surprising. Now, what we don't have in Europe is any evidence at all archaeologically for the two actually meeting. We don't have archaeological sites in which those very identifiable remains left by Neanderthals are found in the same levels or close to those left by Homo sapiens. What happens is Neanderthals become extinct and then Homo sapiens appear. Now, we don't know whether that occurred within a century or so that our dating, you know, the resolution of our dating methods doesn't allow us to identify, but there's no exchange of items or anything like that that would lead us to believe that in Europe there's a long period of crossover. So I don't think that we can actually make any really serious arguments that these were present in any number and for any length of time in any one specific area. It's probably very fleeting, very occasional meetings. There is a different perspective on this because it strikes me as no coincidence that it's only when all of these other human species disappear by 40,000 years ago that Homo sapiens really starts changing its behaviour. That's when we start doing figurative art, all the sort of cave art that is so iconic of the European Paleolithic and various other behaviours. Is figurative art absolutely unique to Homo sapiens? Because you do make a distinction in your book between, say, figurative art is this moment. Yes. On the strength of current evidence, yes. The appearance of figurative art comes very late in the dispersals of Homo sapiens. Even when we turn up in Europe, we don't do figurative art. It becomes important to us clearly much later. Neanderthals, and we don't know about Denisovans yet, do non-figurative art. It's all about extending bits of their bodies, you know, blowing a hand stencil or um, covering the tips of the fingers with pigment and pressing them on walls. But they don't draw pictures of things. So that does seem, on the strength of current evidence, unique to Homo sapiens. Now, to start to move towards this question of culture, one of the things I found fascinating in your book is you talk about the, if you like, how you avoid inbreeding and the idea that this is obviously you need some sort of adaptive behavior that prevents these little group of skills that are surviving in i guess you know extended families almost in little areas of the of the tundra they start having sort of little music festivals or meetups and you you seem to suggest if i'm if i'm reading you rightly that you know the origins of this sort of ritual and cultural exchange are basically so you meet some other people once or twice a year and can 
keep your genetic pool fresh. Is that is that how you read it? Yes. There's two reasons to have these little music festivals and so on. The first is very much that, to keep the gene pool open to a degree at least and minimise inbreeding, which is inevitable to a degree in these small-scale populations, but also, of course, to maximise your chances of survival by having a, an insurance network, if you like. So if, let's say... We're Ice Age hunter-gatherers and our annual round, we're highly mobile, takes us from roughly where the spectators' offices are to where my office in Durham is. That's the kind of scale we're probably dealing with. But what if the wild horses and the reindeer stop passing through your offices in Durham at this time? Now, that's fine if we happen to be in touch once a year, maybe, with groups operating on what is now the North Sea, the plains of that that connect us to the low countries or indeed further afield, then they may have some information. Ah, well, that's because the horses are now out on what we would call dogger bank and this kind of thing. Whereas if we don't maintain these connections, then obviously we're in far more danger of local extinction. We can actually tell in Ice Age Europe in particular, and Africa for that matter, that these very long distance networks were being maintained by the way that cultural objects circulate. If we have any material we find on an archaeological site that's been modified by a human, say a shell used for jewellery or a lump of red ochre, if we can source those, if we know what ocean the shell comes from or we know what geological deposit the ochre comes from, we can obviously draw lines and measure distances as to how far they've been carried. And we can see this really ramps up in that period from 40,000 years ago. So it's an insurance policy against inbreeding as well as uh, you know nutritional failures. But you look at the DNA of the human remains we have from Ice Age Europe, and there's always a bit of inbreeding. You look at the biological anthropology, there, there's also the kind of deliverance style traits of uh, inbreeding that work their way onto the skeleton as well. Yeah. Now, you know, we need to talk about mammoths because mammoths are this, you know, it, it's a sort of joy because all those really sort of vulgar basic ideas about Stone Age man hunting mammoths, the mammoth really was sort of vitally important, wasn't it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we have to give you an idea of the dramatically different climate we're dealing with. We have depictions of mammoths in the caves of northern Spain and particularly in the south of France, but it's really once we get over into Central and Eastern Europe, that the big herds of the mammoths become so critical, not only to survival, there's a massive amount of fat and meat and bone and workable sinew, etc. on their carcasses. And as with modern elephants, we can tell that Ice Age mammoths were dying in particular areas. They probably had quite restricted ranges. They were highly mobile within them, but very predictable. So tended to die within around watercourses, salt licks, this kind of thing. So our hunter-gatherer ancestors could predict where big amounts of their carcasses were available. And we have lots of evidence for them sorting through these, butchering them, making dwelling structures out of the remains of several dozen mammoths in some cases, living with extraordinary within kind of maps of how you make a how you make a mammoth 
dwelling or I mean, it's, <laughs> you're, you're a bit ambivalent about whether all of these were dwellings or some of them were ritual spots but but you know how do you construct a kind of mammoth rondavel because mm. you've Mm. You know, there's really close detail there, isn't there? Yeah, and a tremendous amount of effort. We have very good data from sites in the Czech Republic and right over through to Ukraine, which show that first you make a foundation. These are circular structures, perhaps four or five metres across. Good enough for a, a nuclear family, if indeed nuclear families were how these groups were organised. But anyway, you lay down some crania upside down They've probably still got the tusks in. So if you imagine you take an elephant skull, a mammoth skull in this case, place it upside down, the tusks curve in and form a low curved dome of your roof structure. You can then build the wall around the lower part of that by lashing mammoth shoulder blades, nice large flat building blocks in and perhaps intersperse some vertebral columns as the the kind of posts, you know, and then once you've made this bony superstructure and two, three, four dozen mammoths could go into uh, supplying materials, it gives you an idea of the heaps of carcasses available. Then you can perhaps turf it over, put hides on it and so on. So these are substantial winter structures. And as you say, we don't think all of them were prosaic tents there's some collections of these materials with pits in which objects have been buried objects carved from their tusks so probably some kind of ritual areas and so on but there these people were literally living in the remains of mammoths for perhaps six months of the year it's fat of course that's really critically important to surviving in northern latitudes Often we think of meat as being critical because it has all these lovely nutrients in a nice, convenient package. But meat prior to domesticated forms is not tasty. It smells of blood. It's not that pleasant. And you listen to any ethnographically recorded people, such as the Inuit in the last century, they'll say, ah, you know, meat is uh, for the dogs or perhaps for the women. Forgive me, that it's not me saying that, you know, but it's not for us. What we want is the fat because that's the critical way to survive. So, you know, it's a mammoth fat fest. It's a music festival, I suppose, to keep your analogy that is selling lots of fatty foods (laughs) rather than, you know, vegan noodles and this kind of thing. And that's why the mammoth are really so critical in Central and Eastern Europe. Well, so as you describe it, they, I mean, as well as being pleasingly easy to chase because they knock everything down when they go past it, you think they might have been crucial in the way in which we were able to expand so quickly over large areas of ground? Yes, I think, well, I think other resources are important there too. Wild horse are particularly important, huge animal, huntable and so on, reindeer, wild cattle and so on. But I think the critical thing about mammoths is that perhaps they and only they allow us to adopt a degree of sedentary behavior in other words stay put in the same tents in the same site campsite for up to half a year and solve all of the problems that arise when people are living in in such close proximity and perhaps the walk away option that hunter gatherers have my neighbors are annoying me they're banging their shaman's drum all night 
I walk away, you know, and to solve the problems if you can't do that. So for me, I think that mammoths become important in setting up, which let's face it, is the behaviour that is critical to our own domestication, staying put, becoming villagers, if you like, not permanently in this case, but setting up the behavioural possibility of that occurring later. Now, also, you know, to return to the extreme danger of the environment, you talk with reference to Cuvier of catastrophe, Mm. As being, I mean, we've got a series of absolutely shockingly enormous volcanic eruptions punctuating this whole process. And then finally, what gets the innocuous moniker of the LGM when, you know, the fun's all over for a bit as well. How did catastrophes punctuate and affect the progress of, you know, our hominid ancestors to Mm. homo sapiens as we are now? Well, catastrophism has been pretty unpopular in the social sciences for some time now, of course, because us humans are supposed to be the engineers of our own fate and so on, but but not so in the Pleistocene when climate is being driven not only by the way that the Earth orbits the sun, the different ways it orbits, it wobbles and this kind of thing, but also what the polar ice caps are doing. And if we have massive ice discharges into the Atlantic, say it shuts down the complex circulation of warm saline waters and can plunge Europe into ice ages. Added to that, we do have a number of these super eruptions, as you say. First, Toba over in Sumatra around 70,000 years ago, and then the so-called Fledgrayan Fields eruption from the Bay of Naples, no surprise that the Romans thought that's where the Roman god Vulcan lived. It's an awful active volcanic area. Is that a race memory, do you think? Yeah, as the inhabitants of Pompeii found out too. So we do have a number of these events that punctuate the uh, Earth-related orbitally related climate change. The point of volcanic eruptions here is that they pump vast amounts of ejecta up into the atmosphere that cuts out the amount of sunlight the Earth's receiving and therefore has a dramatic effect on its growing season and therefore the animals that live on the plants or the tundra and so on. So in short, this term volcanic winter can mean that, you know, for 10 or 20 years or more, the environment effectively shuts down. And of course, on a small scale, one year would be disastrous enough. You can have as many music festivals and get togethers as you like. But if your environment for hundreds or thousands of kilometers is shut down, that brings about local extinction, a collapse of the whole ecosystem. And sadly, we can even have these events occurring together and the best example is homo sapiens first dispersal up into europe from the near east where we establish a presence in the balkans perhaps as far north as the hungarian plain perhaps over as far as maybe northeastern italy by 42,000 years ago or thereabouts. That's our first toes dipping in the Europe of the Neanderthals, who will be somewhere further to the north and west of that. But then two things happen. First, this volcano in the Bay of Naples erupts. 
sets off a volcanic winter and then hot on its heels as it were we have a massive discharging of ice from the the northern ice caps into the Atlantic so the result is a significantly cold period that brings our dispersal into Europe to an end. Do we just scurry back to North Africa those of us who are still able to? Yes and in fact we have evidence of that scurrying. (laughs) Uh, Certainly populations of homo sapiens in Africa modern ones I mean have like the rest of us a ghost population a genetic signature of intermixing with Neanderthals this can only derive because we know Neanderthals were nowhere near Africa this can only derive from a back migration of homo sapiens who had in Eurasia interbred with Neanderthals but also we can see this archaeologically thankfully we have very very characteristic sets of stone tools that we can see deriving from the Near East, spreading into Europe, and then coming back in a slightly modified form into the Near East, into Israel, for example, as well. So we can see exactly that that process of scurrying, if you like. Well, rather than dwell on these momentary hiccups, let's let's try and talk about those stone tools and the, and the way the narrative moves forward, because there are these various watersheds you set out and the first one, I think, which you seem to say is is a kind of characteristic Homo sapiens thing. Is it the microblades? There's a sort of development in yes. spear tips that suddenly you go, actually, this is where we were, you know, we were starting to really cook with gas. Yes. Really, I, the first phase of our behavioural evolution I see is African, and it has come about by or shortly after 100,000 years ago. And by this time, we are using colorants. We have something of a visual culture, but also we can see that when we are accessing fine quality flints to nap into those all important weapon tips and knives, that these will be carried over large distances in the environment. And that coincides with the appearance of these micro tools, micro blades and so on. Quite difficult technologically to make. But this really takes us well out of the range of what Neanderthals were doing with stone tools. The point of these is that you can be far more flexible and efficient if you have a pouch full of spear tips and one breaks, as they will inevitably do as soon as you hit an animal's ribcage with a, a flint tip spear, it'll break. You'll need to replace it. So that's fine. You can do it very quickly whilst gossiping over the hearth at night and you're done. You can repair it in the field and so on. You can put a series of these little microblades together to form a knife edge, if you like, a long cutting edge. And if one breaks, you don't need to make and replace the whole thing. You just replace the element. So it becomes a far more flexible way of adapting technologically. And that's what we can really see ramping up again in Africa at the same time as we've dispersed into Europe as well. And as we move on from that, you describe one of the early human kind of groups you call periodized they called the Salutrians. And these guys, they really suddenly came up with a whole new set of tools, didn't they? Yes, that really is the epitome of napping in Ice Age Europe. So us archaeologists tend to have eponymous periods. We tend to summarise, to refer to a period by a name that comes from an archaeological site that's particularly representative. So the site of Solutre, which was a horse ambushing 
and butchery site in the south of France, in Saône-et-Loire, has given its name to the Solutrian, which was restricted to southwest, well, France south of the Loire and the northern littoral of Spain between about 23,000 and 21,000 years ago. And in this small little area with remarkably cold climate, it maps onto a real decline towards the LGM, as you called it earlier, the last glacial maximum, the last cold period. In this area where snow's on the ground for much of the year, reindeer are pretty much your only, reindeer and wild horse, your only useful animals. The Salutrians achieve a really cultural height. First in the way they're napping flint, they can access the highest quality flints, say from the south of, of France, they can modify these into beautiful leaf-shaped spearheads and knives, some of which are so thin they couldn't have functioned physically without breaking. So perhaps they had some kind of value to them in terms of the skills it took to, to make these beautiful things. But also they were very efficient at hunting tips. They acted very efficiently too. They were even baking these. If you actually heat up gently materials of a cryptocrystalline silica, flints, the resulting changes in their microstructure make them even easier to manipulate in very detailed ways. So it's preparing your materials, you know, rather like a potter would remove impurities from their clay. Uh, this is a similar technical way of dealing with nappable stones. But they also carve in high relief freezes, half life size freezes of animals on the rear walls of the rock shelters they were using as campsites. This is in no way any worse than modern sculpture. You know, I, I would say, go out on a limb and say, you know, the Salutrian sculpture was as technically and aesthetically achieved as the Parthenon freezes. You could mix and match the two to an extent. So it's a remarkable little blip of culture. And we find this here and there, rising and falling, appearing and disappearing, these little cultural areas. I should say, incidentally, you... you... <laughs> You describe in passing, you said another group called the Badagulians, you say they had an awful line in stone tools, which seems a bit harsh. I mean, they were doing their best. What was it so awful about the Badagulians? Is that why they're, they're no longer about? They are fascinating. We don't know much about them. They are a very short blip that appear just after the Salutrians disappear and just before the great Magdalenians spread. But anyway, what the Badagulians are marked by and this is about 21, 22,000 years ago in Central and Western Europe, is some really scrappy stone tools. They don't do all the fine blades and micro blades that the cultures before and after them do. They're not so keen on it. However, and this is where I must be very kind to them, and perhaps they're too preoccupied with their art to worry about stone tools, they do, as far as we can tell pretty confidently now, create cave art, and it is Badagulians who are responsible for Lascaux, one of the most sublime treasures of world art, and particularly of Paleolithic art. So, you know, great artists, not so worried about their tools. Fair enough. That just goes back a bit, that, that stereotype. <laughs> but art is, is, you know, where we're heading with this, and I'm, I'm intrigued that... 
you know, you start to talk about these things, for instance, you know, these leaf-shaped spearheads that are too finely made to be any use, and you describe at various points the sort of early ceramics that seem to have been baked wet so that they shatter, yeah. i.e. that are, are not, you know, permanent objects, but are kind of processes. You know, are we starting to see at this point, or starting to get hints of what function art might have for these people, i.e., you know, as a ritual, as an the making of a permanent object. I mean, how how much are we able to understand what was going on? I think we can go a fair way. First, with the caveat, though, that these great umbrella theories of what was art for (laughs) are unfashionable now, but there's probably elements in which old ideas have a degree of truth. So there's probably a degree of hunting magic, you know, empowering you in the hunt and so on. But certainly art appeared in domestic context you were just as likely to be carrying around an object a tool that was embellished with images or an object that was an image in its own right as you were to participate in activities in a deep cave in which the creation of art was an integral part as well I think when we get to a lot of art we can see that it had some kind of ritual purpose some of it I'm thinking cave art here. Some of it was the work of an individual. It's tucked away. It's a private act. And probably the creation of the art or the image was important. But at other times, and Lascaux, Altamira, Neo in the French Pyrenees are good examples of these. It was a a group act and group rituals, if you like. To me, if we can say that there was one overarching concern with Paleolithic art, it is creation and explaining how things come about. It's overwhelmingly dominated by images of animals. Not only that, those prey animals that were critical to survival. It's a celebration of those resources that you need to exploit to survive. No surprise that animals are good to think with. And that's probably why, evolutionary speaking, animals in the modern world are far better at selling things to us than humans are. (laughs) Yes, you draw a kind of line in this book between Lascaux and Tony the Tiger. Exactly. (laughs) And and wouldn't you prefer to buy off of Tony the Tiger than than some, you know, suit-wearing salesman? So that shows what our brains have evolved to think is good and, and animal resources, wild animals in particular that. So certainly, I think what we're seeing with a lot of the visual culture is typically the way hunter-gatherers view the world. They see themselves not as above anything, having dominion, to use a biblical term, but as an integral part of the world where everything is interconnected and they are borrowing from it, not taking from it when they kill a wild horse, for example. So the way they tend to think is that They have a concern with how those animals are coming back into the world if they're borrowing them from it. And for me, caves are almost places of birth. You know, these are these liminal, mysterious places underground where this world meets the spirit realm. Every culture in the world we can observe historically has beliefs of that nature. This is perhaps where our hunter-gatherers are celebrating that re-entry and perhaps 
in many respects, it's a form of midwifery. They're helping those animals come out. They're finding natural ridges, cracks in the rock, bumps, lumps and bumps that resemble the back of a horse, the head of a bison. And they recognise that and they draw the rest of the animal out. That's midwifery as far as I'm concerned. You do make the point that, you know, cavemen, you know, weren't interested in caves in the way that, you know, the cartoons would have it. They didn't live inside caves or not deep in caves. There was no real reason to go back into caves unless there was some sort of ritual or numinous interest. Is that right? Quite right. Yeah. Although we have historically called them cavemen and we do have evidence for them using cave mouths like rock shelters, you know, the daylight zones to pitch their tents in. There's no reason whatsoever in a prosaic sense to go beyond the light zone. They're dangerous. You need to light your way. You can get lost. And of course, there's nothing to eat in a cave. And if you drink the water, and I have this on good authority from a colleague who did, you'll have a bad stomach ache or worse. (laughs) So anyway, you get water from the rivers you're camped about. So the mere fact that we know Neanderthals were exploring the depths of caves on occasion and in three cases at least left traces of their own bodies in the form of art in those caves and certainly the fact that homo sapiens were from sometime after 40,000 years ago shows that there is something additional to the behavior to the imaginations if you like of those two groups of humans. It's not exclusive to Homo sapiens, but we take it further. And in a way, we start taking down our memories of the tundra in the world above into those caves. And it's got to be in some kind of ritual sense. And there's also, which kind of fascinates me, you know, the very stylized, but pretty much universally, identically stylized way in which animals are drawn in caves you argue that there may be an explanation in cognitive science for that. Can you explain how that how that works? Certainly, yeah. And this is, in my opinion, one of the exciting ways that we're moving research forward. In my case, working with our professor of visual psychology at Durham, Bob Kentridge. What we can tell is that the process of pareidolia was often at work in the creation of Ice Age art. Paradolia is very strong in all of us. That is the way our brains have a tendency to make meaning, make sense of natural shapes. It's why we look up into the clouds and see the face of Jesus or slice open a tomato and see Harry Kane missing a penalty or whatever. So this operates quite strongly in most of us and certainly it has evolutionary origins. What it derives from is our evolution much before Homo sapiens on the savannah, where the brain has to make very quick hair-triggered decisions as to whether you're facing a threat or not. In other words, if there's a shape in the corner of your eye and it could be a leopard or a rock, you obviously don't want to pause as a three-foot-tall australopithecine or early homo and think, I'll have a look. Is it one of those? Because the leopard would be on you. And equally, you don't want to think, ah, it's probably a rock. So the brain makes these hair-triggered reactions. It shouts leopard to you. It 
conjures the image of a leopard in your mind and it's better to be embarrassed that it's actually a rock after all. And that explains a lot of the way that we read the natural world. And this comes through, we've known anecdotally for a long time that lumps and bumps of those caves, as I say, were recognised as a bit of a horse, a bit of a reindeer, a bit of a red deer and so on. And those animals were then drawn around it. And what we're able to do now, though, is use modern visual psychology techniques, research techniques, to actually demonstrate scientifically that people are drawn to these. We can have so much fun. We take three-dimensional photographic images of cave art, we import them into a virtual cave in virtual reality, and then we have a participant, we, we digitally remove the art, and we have a participant walking around that virtual cave with a simulated light source like our Ice Age ancestors would have, and we track their eyes and we ask them questions, and we can see time and time again, they concentrate on these lumps and bumps, and then we ask them what they see, and they say, well, it looks a bit like the back of a horse. And sure enough, then we can put the art back, as it were, and show how it correlates. So we can really tell scientifically now, not just anecdotally, that pareidolia arguably could be responsible for the fact that us humans do figurative art, full stop. It could lie really at the root of human art. Now, final thing I want to ask you about, because we're running out of time, but there is a mystery that you establish quite early on in this book about the mortality curve, about the fact that the bodies you find are not, as you would expect, the bodies of old people, proportionately. And as you say, you know, why would this be? <laughs> How do you resolve that mystery? How, why is it that the remains we find are of young and apparently, apart from being dead, healthy <laughs> members of the Stone Age population? Yeah, this comes down to my point that you know, one of the behaviours we all think is intrinsically human is burying the dead or at least much later cremating the dead or whatever, but burying them. And we have perhaps 100, 120 burials from the Ice Age overall. And it's really only in the last couple of thousand years of the Ice Age that cemeteries, as you and I would know them, begin to emerge. Places that are set aside for the dead and all the dead or most of them are buried there. But that's not the picture we have from the few burials we have in Africa for this time and the several dozen burials we have for Europe. These are always in place in campsites, like burying your dead in your lounge, you know, just before leaving or something like that. They're usually quite simple and so on. Now, if we just had a normal population in which everybody who died would be buried, we'd obviously, in these small groups, in harsh environments with lots of infant deaths and, you know, this kind of thing, we'd have burials of all age ranges from those who've been unlucky to die as neonates as infants children adolescents right through to the elderly which would perhaps take you into your 50s at this time but the interesting thing is is that we really don't and I'm thinking of burials we have from central Europe really over to eastern Europe here is that those individuals that are buried are usually young adult males in the main. They're young adults and males overwhelm numbers of females who are usually associated 
with burials of males anyway. So it's a very different picture and it says that this isn't a natural thing. So probably most people simply weren't buried who lived in the Pleistocene. We don't know what we were doing to them. Perhaps we were just abandoning them like chimpanzees do. Perhaps we were tucking them away in trees, floating them off down rivers. But whatever the case, their remains disintegrate and don't come down to us. So those burials we have were few and far between and they're very selective. So something must be in these cultural groups at this time saying, well, deaths are normal, but for odd circumstances, we need to do something different about them. And that's where the other observation, human remains specialist colleagues have, have observed that these are usually pathological. There's something wrong with these individuals in life or they've died a violent death. And I think that's what we're seeing here is that burial evolves not as we think of it, standing sadly by a grave, commemorating a loved one, marking where they've come to rest, but as ritual containments, really, as cases rather like with vampirism <laughs> in the supposed vampirism in the 19th century, cases where deaths have been bad, unexpected, you know, youngsters dying violence, this kind of thing, and which for some reason these need to be contained. So when we view that, our early funerary behaviour, as we would call it, in the context of emerging use of caves in art, creation of figurines, which as you said, sometimes are sculpted and fired when wet, when wet clay so as to shatter, we can see that we really by now have this remarkable world of the imagination that again is so characteristic of our our own species extraordinary well our species carries on <laughs> and long may it do so paul pettit thank you very much indeed for your time thank you